0: Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I am Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast you will hear our passion for the gospel and people's need to hear it and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus Christ can bring. Today we're going to continue our series in the book of Amos. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons in our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply send me an email at pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now... Let's begin our time today. We'll be in the book of Amos. We're making our way through the book of Amos in the Old Testament. Um, If you don't know exactly how to get to Amos, your table of contents in your Bible will tell you um, how to get there. Verses will be up on the screen. But we're going to be in Amos 4 today. We're going to read through Amos 4, and then we'll go through that and see. What we can learn this morning, what God has for us. Let's look in Amos four, starting in verse one. Amos four, verse one, says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The Lord has the Lord God has sworn by his holiness, Behold, The days are coming upon you when they'll take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through the breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harman, declares the Lord. Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened. And proclaim freewill offerings. Make them known. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord. But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Furthermore, I withheld rain from you. And while there were still three months until harvest, then I would send rain on one city. And on another city, I would not send rain. One part would be rained on while the other part, well, well, part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but you would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses, and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name." Let's pray over this passage this morning. Heavenly Father, God, as we come to your word, God, we ask that you would make us alert of mind and responsive in our heart. God, I pray that you would speak to us from this prophet from the the 8th century B.C. God, today that we would apply that to our life today. God, that we would walk away knowing you more and walking closer to you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I am the youngest of five children. People say, oh, you're the baby. And I say, no, my sister Audra is the baby. I'm the youngest. That's funnier if you know my sister. But anyway, I'm the youngest of five. The middle of the children was my brother Mark. Mark was honorary as a kid. Mark would... Would uh, go out with one of his friends um, one day in the summertime, and he'd go out and they would do something. And by the time he got back home, even before he got back home, he was in trouble and grounded for two weeks. You know how it is? People would call up, they would know, mom and dad would know. He'd walk in the house and he was automatically grounded for two weeks. He would be at home for two weeks, he would go out again. And he would be out a day, and before he got home, he was grounded for another two weeks. I mean, he lived his week, he's lived his life in two-week groundings, you know, throughout the summer. Uh, he was just honoring. He was always in trouble. And I remember as as a young boy, hearing the discipline my brother would receive, I'll just leave it at that, right? In the other part of the room, there would be discipline happening, and I would say, okay, take note, Roland, to not do what your, brothers do, what your brother did to receive that discipline, right? My brother's discipline was my warning, is what I would say. I would hear him being disciplined and say, I need to not be doing those things. That is essentially what, what Amos 4 is. At least it should be for us in the 21st century. We could see Israel maybe as an older brother who is being disciplined and their discipline is our warning that we should say we don't want to go through that and therefore we must live differently than what they did their their discipline is our warning and so we need to we need to understand this he starts off and he says in chapter four hear this word he said that in chapter 3, verse 1. He says it in chapter 4, verse 1. He'll say it in chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word, and this word is from the Lord. This, this idea of hearing isn't let the words impact your audio um, nerve. It is saying these words need to come into your ears. It needs, you need to understand what these words say. This should transform the inner in, inside of you and it should come out as a response of living differently. When he says here, he is calling for a response. And he's going to tell them, we read at the end, prepare to meet your God. Now this is incredibly, it's an incredible warning or it's a, it's a time of hope depending upon where you're living one day we're all going to meet God. Everyone here is going to meet God. Everyone listening to my voice one day will stand before the Lord and we need to be prepared to meet him by having our wash our hearts washed clean with the blood of Jesus. We are to prepare to meet our God. And when we have our hearts transformed by by Jesus' work on the cross, that should be exemplified. It should be displayed in our life on how we live. And that is the focus today. So I'm going to talk about preparing to meet our Lord, and I'm going to give us some evidences in our life of if we're ready or not. But I'm not simply saying that we should act a certain way and that prepares us to meet our Lord. I want to make sure we're clear on that. To prepare to stand before God Almighty, it, it requires a repentance of, of heart and life and trusting in Christ and him alone for our salvation. And so that's what we, we see here. He is saying, prepare to meet your God. That is where he's going to end up and so when we, if we're preparing to meet our God, we should examine our hearts, and we should see what our life looks like, and if our life is, is exemplifying things that are godly, that is a good thing. If our life is exemplifying things that are not, then we are not ready, and we get ready by having Jesus. Okay, I hope we got that clear. So let's look at the first thing. When preparing to meet our God, examine our hearts, see if it's filled first with oppression or compassion. Look in verse one, one through three. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks, and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go through the breaches in the walls. Each one straight before her, and you will be cast to harm,"on declares the Lord. Is your heart filled with oppression, or is it filled with compassion? Now, there are things in Scripture that sometimes you come across as a passion. You say, I'm not sure I really want to preach this. And this is one of those times, because Amos calls the women of Samaria cows. And I don't want to do that. Okay. Need to make sure we understand what he is talking about. This is to the women. And he calls them the cows of Bashan. Now we have to remember that in in biblical times, the way they spoke about beauty was a different measurement than the way we talk about beauty. Turn to Song of Solomon anywhere and listen to how he woos, how Solomon woos his bride. And he says, your hair is like a flock of goats running down a hill. And that just warms the cockles of the heart. He says, your teeth, my love, are like shorn sheep. All of them are still there. That's what he says. He says, not one of them have lost their twin. They have a different gauge of beauty, okay? So when he talks about the cows of Bashan, he is not talking about size. He's really talking about beauty and overindulgence is really what he's talking about. He's talking about overindulgence. Bashan was a fertile area east of the Jordan River. And the cattle there were sleek and they were well fed. Someone, one commentator said, this would be like saying, these are the the grass fed Aberdeen black Angus cattle. They are the best. They are the best out there. And these were, were, they were called cows, again, not because of some derogatory comment, but because of how beautiful it was to see those cows on the hillside, but also because of their overindulgence. And we see that in what's being said here. The Samaritan women, remember, Amos is our sheep shearing cow milk and fig picker from the south. And he has made his way from the south all the way up to Samaria, and he stands in the city square and he is talking to the wealthy and the privileged of the northern kingdom. And these women there were wealthy and they were pampered and they were lazy, it indicates. And they would they would it says here they would oppress the poor and crush the needy. They would violate and defraud and they would commit violence against the most vulnerable of the society. And if it wasn't them, they would they would conjole their husbands into doing it. And we see that. They said, Husbands, I need more drink as I lay here throughout the day, go make some more money by cheating the poor. And the husbands would go do that. The word husband here in verse 1 is really the word Lord. And what we see here is that the women would say to the lords of the household, so to speak, and would go command them to go do things. Everything was turned upside down. Go get me more drinks as I lay here. Go oppress the poor and the needy so I can have more. And what we see is that these women stand in direct contrast to a Proverbs 31 woman. In fact, if you read some of this passage and then you read Psalm 31, you see some very similar words used in contrast. For example, if you turn to Psalm 31 starting in verse 20, the, the Samaritan woman oppressed the needy and oppressed the poor and crushed the needy. But the Proverbs 21 woman, it says she extends her hand to the poor and she stretches out her hand to the needy. You see the difference? One is offering a hand of help and the other is using their hand to crush. It's in direct contrast The Samaritan women's call to the husbands and demand more from them. I want more. Go get me more. Where the Psalm, or sorry, the Proverb 31 woman in verse 26, it says, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. The picture Amos is picturing, or the picture that Amos is painting here in in Amos 4 is that these women were laying around and drinking all day with nothing to do but gaining more stuff. And he says, listen... What he's, what he's really painting here is that the women are as guilty as the men. In chapter 3, everything, well, everything in Amos, he has been bringing judgment upon those who are God's people, who are not following after him, who are following after idols. And he's saying the women are as guilty as the men. It's not just the men problem. And he says, God, the Lord God, the, the Adonai Yahweh, Lord Yahweh has sworn by his holiness in verse 2. He promises judgment's coming. And he swears by the greatest thing he knows to swear by. God's yes is yes, and his no is no. But he says, I want to make sure you understand that I promise, as sure as I am holy, this judgment is coming. It's used only one other time where it says, He has sworn by his holiness and it's found in psalm 89 verse 35 where he swears by his holiness that David's throne will endure forever and we know that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ just as sure as David's throne will be endure forever throughout all time god says this judgment is coming to these women the judgment's coming because They were about oppression instead of compassion. And if they were following after the Lord, if God had truly transformed their life, compassion would ooze out of them. They'd be a Proverbs 31 woman. You hear what we're saying? They were about oppression. Based on God's otherness, his his entire otherness, God is different. He is above and beyond his creation. He is holy. He is distinctively holy. And based on that, he says, judgment's coming. And he says, listen, you're gonna act, you're, you are going to act like cattle. We're going to be treated as cattle. They're going to put hooks in, into you, meat hooks and fish hooks. And they're going to drive you out of this city. And what we find is that's what Assyria did. Assyria would come into a city, and specifically some of the women they would take and they would put hooks in their noses or hooks in their mouths or in their lips and they would drive them out. And he says there's holes going to be in the wall of Samaria, this capital city, and they're going to go out line in, in a in single file so that they couldn't escape. They couldn't get in a group and try to, try to escape. They're going to be led out to Assyria. He says, in fact, they're going to go to Harmon. Here's the deal. No one knows where Harmon's at. Some think it's Mount Hermon. Some think that there's other things, but no one knows. And I think that's the point. They're going to leave these wealthy, influential, pampered women are going to be taken away at judgment and they're going to go someplace. No one knows. They're going to be forgotten and they're going to disappear. That is the judgment God says is coming upon them. Not because of anything other than they were about oppression instead of compassion, guys we, we need to have compa- we need to have the compassion of Christ. If we have Jesus Christ into our life, the compassion of Jesus must flow out of us. when we see other people, it should be. Not something we work at. It should just flow out of us, seeing, seeing other people. And, and on, on May 16th, 1989, a 15-year-old Christopher Searcy, he was playing basketball. Um, I don't remember exactly what city they were in, but they were playing basketball, and he got shot in the chest. And he was less than a block away from Ravenswood Hospital And so their friends ran to the hospital and said, our friend has been shot. Come and take care of our friend. And the hospital staff said, we're not going to go because he's not on hospital grounds. He's not here. So he's not going to get treatment. Well, they're 15-year-old kids. They're trying to do whatever they can to get their friend there, but their friend's just shot. Finally, they got a policeman who was able to drag this kid to the hospital. Eventually... But it was too late. Afterwards, like within an hour, Christopher died. They, of course, sued, and there was, a, there was a, a suit that was done, and they won. The hospital is now closed down, as you might imagine. Here's the point. This, this child bled to death in the shadow of the hospital because there wasn't compassion for the hurt. It was a rigid, he's not here, and so we're not going to help him. See, that can't be our heart. Our heart cannot be like this hospital. We are surrounded in our community by those who desperately need to know Jesus. And we can't say, well, they're not here on Sunday morning. And if they were here, then they'd hear the gospel. We can't say, we can't let them die in the shadow of our building, not knowing Jesus. Our compassion has to be broader than that. We must be out in the community. So the question is, do we have the compassion of Jesus to make sure that we share the good news of Jesus with those who have not made it inside the building yet? Will we show compassion to them? He's going to tell them, prepare to meet your God. When you stand before God and he examines your heart, is he going to see oppression, oppression, Or is he going to see compassion? Based in Jesus Christ, but what's what's he going to see? Second, what's he going to see? When you stand before God, are you going to come to him based on religion or relationship? Religion or relationship. Look in verse 4 and 5. 4 and 5, Amos says, Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer thanks, a thank offering also from that which is leaven. And proclaim free will offerings. Make them known. For so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord. This is satire. This is like Amos saying this. This would be equivalent, if I was saying something like this, I'd say, come to Rosemont so you can sin. Worship with us today so your sins will increase. Well, that makes no sense, right? That's what Amos is saying. Amos is saying in the very act of their religion, their sins are multiplying, even though they are rigidly following the law. They're rigidly following the, They kept the law very strictly. First, he mentions Bethel and Gilgal. These are sacred places in Israel's life. Bethel, you might remember if you know your Old Testament stories, Jacob ran from his life because he stole his brother's blessing. Esau was after him. He ran from the Lord and he stopped one night and he, he fell asleep and he had a dream of angels ascending and descending and he met God there. And when he woke up, he called that place the house of God. That's what Bethel means. It's a sacred place in Israel's history. Gilgal is the place where when the the people of God finally made it through the wilderness 40 years, they're ready to enter into the promised land. They're standing at the edge of the Jordan River. God dries up the Jordan River and they cross over on dry land and they set up. 12 stones as a remembrance, God has brought us to the promised land, and that place is Gilgal. It was also the place where their first king was anointed and and made king. Gilgal is an important, sacred place in, in Israel's life. But what we also found is when the kingdom split... The southern two tribes, called Judah, had Jerusalem where they worshipped. The ten northern tribes, that's called Israel. The first king, Jeroboam I, said, We need to make places of worship here so they won't go down to Jerusalem and I'll lose my people. So he set up places of worship in Bethel and in Dan. And he set up golden calves and he said to the people, This is your God. And the Northern 10 tribes engaged in idolatrous worship from that point on. They acknowledged these sacred places, but they were totally engulfed in idolatry in these places. They weren't worshiping the one true God. And they kept, like I said, they kept the law very strictly. Numbers 28, three and four, you can write these down, look at them later if you want to, but it says they need to do a sacrifice every morning. Now, the people in Samaria could do that because they were oppressing the poor, getting more money, and they were using those ill-gotten gains to make these sacrifices every morning. But they were keeping the law. Not filled with compassion, but they were keeping the law very strictly. Deuteronomy 14.28 says, Tithes are to give, be given once every three years. Now, that's not a New Testament concept, so I'm just making sure you all know. Right? Okay. Don't say, I gave my, my three-year tithe. But, uh, but it says, once every three years, you're to give a tithe of these things. Well, they're going beyond the law because they said, we're not waiting every three years. We're going to give it every three days. They're going beyond the law. Look how faithful we are. Again, they only have the money, so much money, because they are pulling it from the poor and committing violence against them. Leviticus 2, 11 through 13 says that when you give a thanks offering, you not only offer unleavened bread, but there's some leavened bread that you offer with them. And that's what it says here. They offered leavened bread. It even says they do th- freewill offerings. These are voluntary offerings. When you just feel like thanking God, you go and you just give something to the Lord and you say, thank you. It's a free will offering. They were, they were faithful in their And and following the law, the problem was all these things were offered to idols, to a golden calf. God says, you love to do this. See what it says? For so you love to do. And every time they did it, they were multiplying their sin because they were worshiping a false god. Every time. They were faithful in their religion. And notice here, he sandwiches it, this particular phrase between verse three, how it ends, declares Yahweh. And then he finishes verse five, declares Yahweh God, Lord God, I'm sorry, Lord Yahweh. Or you could go from verse two, Lord Yahweh and ends. He sandwiches all this by telling them, here is the one true God. He is the redeemer God, the creator God. That's who you should be worshiping, not golden calves. See, in religion, it's what you do. And these people were ticking off the boxes of what they could do. I gave my worship. I gave my offering every single morning. I gave my tithe every three days, check box, checked it off. I've done, I've offered my leavened bread. I offered my free will offering. Look how good I am. Look at what I'm doing. I am a good guy. That's religion and it's vanity. Vanity, religion is what you do. It is your rituals. It is, it is your habits and your work. And, and the reason we do that, the reason people who are focused on religion and their own works, the reason they are doing that is to win the Father's heart. They're saying, maybe if I do more good things, God will love me more. Maybe if I give more, that will cancel out my sin from yesterday. Maybe if I read my Bible more or pray more or go to church more, maybe if I do more, God won't abandon me it's all about my work and it's degrading who God is because God loves us with an everlasting love that he can't love you more than he already does but he loved you so much he gave you gave you his son so that when you believe in him you'll have eternal life see a religion is based upon what you do and it's vanity relationship though is a deep kinship it's a connection that's made based upon, based upon two parties. And when you come and you say, I trust in what Jesus did on the cross, and I trust in the Father's heart to love me and never abandon me, then there's nothing more I can do. There's nothing I can do. There's nothing. I'm not, I don't have to win the Father's heart. I don't have to earn my salvation. And I don't have to keep it because it, once I have it, I have it. We need to think of it like parents. You know, if you're a parent, you have, you, you love your children unconditionally. You, presumably, I get, there's all kinds of kids. I mean, but presumably a parent's going to love their children unconditionally. Doesn't matter what that child does. Sometimes that child's going to disobey. and It's going to drive you nuts. But you still love that child. That child might do things for you, but... The more they do things, it doesn't mean you love them more. It's not like, well, if you don't do the dishes, I'm withholding love from you tonight. That's not how a parent works. We, we love them no matter what they do for us or don't do for us because they're ours. They're our children. And we love them. And so if you take that, multiply it to infinity, and you kind of scratch the surface of the depth the Father has for us, that he loves us no matter what. And that we should stand before God, not based on our religion. We don't go to stand before God at the end of our days and say, God, you should accept me because I was in church every single Sunday. I read my Bible three times a week. I gave my money. I helped the poor. I was a good guy. Tried not to curse too much. I did this and I did that. I'm a pretty good guy. You should let me in. And if we're coming to God with that, he's going to say, depart from me because what? I never knew you relationship, right? But if we go and we say, God, you promised that if I trusted in Christ alone, I'm adopted into your family and I don't deserve to be in heaven, but the blood of Jesus washes me clean. And you said, if I trust in him, you let me in. He'd say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enjoy your reward. See, that's freedom, right? That's freedom. Not to work for our salvation. There are religions that are out there who base the entire, your eternity is based on how much you do. That is not freedom. That are those who live in doubt of their salvation every single day. In fact, if they're trusting in that, they are not saved. How free is it to say, the good that I do is based on my love out of Jesus. I just do it because I love him. I want to read the word, not because I need to check off some boxes and legally do these things, but I read the word because when I read it, I know God more and I want to know him more. I spend time praying not to earn or keep my salvation, but because it's a conversation with my creator and redeemer. See, that's freedom. And that's salvation, simply falling on the redeeming work of Jesus' work on the cross. So when you stand before God, when we enter in eternity, are you entering in, are you going to attempt to enter in on the basis of religion or relationship? That's what we see here. We also see, are you the question is, if you're coming, standing before God, he examines your heart, what's he going to see? Is he going to see rebellion or is he going to see repentance? Rebellion or repentance. Verse six through 11 is, is several different things. We've read through that several different instances And what we see here is Israel's obstinance and rebellion. God uses instance and circumstance and issues in life over and over again, and they reject him. But what we also see in that is God's unrelenting, unremitting love for us. A love that says, I'm not going to let you go. When you say, I don't want to follow him anymore. God doesn't say, well, don't let the door hit you on the way out. God uses instances and circumstances and people to draw us back to him. And that's what he's doing here. We see in verse 6, well, we see first of all five times in 6 through 11, five times the Lord says, yet you have not returned to me. They have not repented. They have not turned. In their stubbornness and in their obstinacy, they said, I am going my own way. I don't care what the Lord says. But repentance is required to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 6, he says he used famine. The Bible is is just awesome in some of the things. He says, I gave you cleanness of teeth. That's That's not dental hygiene. That's saying there was not enough food to get stuck up in there, right? They didn't have salad stuck in their tooth that they didn't know about for three days. There was no food to get their teeth dirty. Cleanness of teeth is a euphemism for they were hungry and starving. There was famine. They didn't have anything to eat. And you would think that if you're starving and there is no place to get food, there's one place you could go. You can go to the bread of life and say, God, please provide for me. Yet it says, you have not returned to me. Famine didn't work. So verses seven and eight, he says, I gave you drought. Oh, by the way, famine, remember Elisha? Second Kings, Kings 8.1, there was a famine for seven years. This isn't like three weeks without food. Seven years there was a famine. And Elisha was the story of, of that, that famine. And he's with the widow. And that's to the northern tribes of Israel. He says, I sent them famine and they wouldn't return. Then he gives them drought. He says, I'll rain here, I'll rain there. And then these people who hear about rain in this city, they'll come over here to get the water that's here, but they won't have enough to be satisfied. There's just not enough water to go around. If you remember 1 Kings 17, Elisha prayed and for three years there wasn't rain. We think it's dry here, right? Three years there wasn't a drop of rain unless Elijah said so. Which by the way, Hebrews tells us that you know, we're just like Elijah. He prayed, and God answered, In three years it didn't rain, and then he prayed, and it rained again. Why wouldn't God listen to our prayers? It's a side note. There's a drought. They couldn't find water anywhere, and this extended drought did not increase their thirst for the living water. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. In verse 9, it says he sent scorching wind and mildew and locusts to eat up their crops. Anything they might be able to manage to grow just a little bit in the midst of a famine and a drought, the bugs and the mildew and the wind would tear it all up and they had nothing left. It kept the crops from growing. And seeing these natural events there's not much you can do when bugs come and eat your, your plants. And when the winds blow in this hot, hot wind that, that torches the, the crops, there's not much you can do. These natural events, it did not turn their heart to the Lord to say, God, please stop this. Let us grow something. Yet you have not returned to me. Verse 10, it gets, it gets worse. He says, I sent a plague like they had in Egypt. Remember Egypt? I mean, they had bugs and frogs and and blood in the water. And there, there was all kinds of things. He said, I sent a plague like they had in Egypt and people were dying. And then he says, if that didn't do it, I sent people with the sword. Military operations coming in and killing people. There was people dying here from epidemic and war. But it would not have the heart of the people would not turn to the Lord. And in verse 11, it says, he goes back to Genesis, back to Sodom and Gomorrah. I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, almost all these other things could be explained away by nature, human nature. You know, the war was just another was it just a nation coming in and conquering. The wind is the wind. Nature is nature. Sometimes it rains, sometimes it doesn't. You could explain away as nature, bad luck. But you know what? When he starts talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, that's all God, right? Fire and brimstone coming down from the sky. That is can't be explained by anything other than God. He says, Look, I am doing these things. You are not paying attention. And he's trying, he's taking them to the woodshed, is what he's doing. And it says, yet They have not returned to me. They stood before the creator of mankind and stood in rebellion instead of repentance. You know, if you read Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy 28 lists out the things that happen if God's people would not listen to the law, if they would reject the Lord and his law Deuteronomy 28 says, then these curses will fall upon you. And you can go, some of these words that are there, mildew, scorching wind, locusts, plague, these things are found in Deuteronomy 28. God is fulfilling his promises. He told them long ago, you start following after other gods, you start rejecting me, here is gonna be the consequence. He's reminding them again. But notice he is still giving them a chance to turn. That is the heart of our God. God. It's the heart that says, I don't want you to leave and I'll use any means I can to have you turn. The heart of God is for us to repent. In God's economy, it takes repentance of saying, I'm going my own way. I'm walking my life. I'm doing the things I want to do. I'm putting things in my body I want to put in. And God says, I need you to turn from that. And we turn away, turn our back to it and say, those desires are no longer mine. I want my desires to be God's desires. I want my life to reflect his life. I want to, to be the kind of person he wants me to be. That is repentance. And that's what God requires. God used the law. He used the words of Amos. He used physical disciplines to turn his people back. And they refused to turn back. You can turn to the last... The last prophet to the northern kingdom, Hosea, and the last chapter of Hosea, you hear God pleading with them, please come back. If you come back, I will restore you. And they would not come back. As we stand before the Lord, are we going to stand in, re- in rebellion or are we going to stand in repentance? There's a story of a man who came down at the end of the service. The pastor called for a response time. He came down and he prayed and he's prayed the prayer. The same thing he had said every time he came down, the pastor heard it over and over again. God, clear the cobwebs out of my life. As the pastor heard that prayer one more time, he interrupted and said, God, just kill the spider, right? (laughs) Just kill the spider. That's the repentance part. We are, repentance is not simply asking for forgiveness and then saying, God, I committed this sin, please forgive me and and might as well forgive me tomorrow when I plan to do the same sin again. See, that's not repentance. Repentance is, is killing the source of temptation. It's killing the spider so the cobwebs don't show up it's a reversal of thinking it's reversal of desires and direction it's grieving over our sin and turning from it look in joel joel chapter 2 verse 13 or sorry 12 and 13 listen our, our god calling us to repent joel 2:12 yet even now declares the lord return to me with all your heart and with fasting and weeping, and mourning, and rend your heart, and not your garments. Now return to the Lord your God, listen, for he is gracious, and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting of evil. That's our God. Don't just tear your clothes and say, look how sad I am. And then I'm going to go and practice the same thing tomorrow. He says, rend your hearts, change your thinking, turn away, turn to him. And when you do, he will be gracious and loving and forgiving and on and on. It's, It's a great word. We will all stand before God one day. And he's going to see our hearts. He sees it now. But when we stand before the Lord, is he going to see our rebellion throughout our life, saying, I refuse to live for you on this planet? Or is he going to see a heart of repentance that has turned to him? That is the question. And last, let's just finish the last couple verses of Amos 4. When we stand before God, one or two things are going to happen. There's going to be judgment or there's going to be worship. There's going to be judgment or there's going to be worship. Look in verse 12. God says, "Thus, Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to a man what are his thoughts... He who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. He says, therefore, all of this built to this therefore, because of their false religions, because of their rebellion and their refusal to follow after the Lord. Therefore, it's like God saying, you ain't seen nothing yet, Israel. You think the drought was bad. You think the famine was bad. You think the scorching heat and the mildew and the locusts and the the plagues were bad. The judgments of God are not coming anymore. God himself is going to come and you'll stand before him and answer for your unrepentance. That's what he is saying. Prepare to meet your God. He sent his judgments and they've rejected him. They've ignored God through the judgments. Now God's going to stand right before them and they will not be able to ignore him. They can sure try, but they will not be able to. Prepare to meet your God. Guys, this is a terrifying warning or it's an incredible message of hope, right? That we're going to stand before God. And if we do not know Jesus, if we have not let Jesus transform our heart, that should terrify us. And it will terrify us if we don't have Jesus. But if we stand before God, covered in the blood of Jesus Christ, it'll just be a, it'll be a homecoming. <laughs> it'll be a time of welcoming and worship. Prepare to meet your God. And who is this God? He says, behold. Remember when we see behold? Remember what that means? It means, looky here. here. Look who this is. Look who this God is. It says, he's the one who makes the mountains. That is, it is he who is the creator. He creates the mountains. The mountains are are like the most stable, most permanent uh, evidence of God's creative power, right? The San Juans have been the San Juans forever, right? They ain't changed. Some of you have lived here your entire life, and Snuffles looks like Snuffles. It hasn't changed, right? Those mountains stay. It is God's permanent witness of His creative power, and God molded them like a potter molds pots. And it says He creates the wind, and some, some believe that even as talking about breath, it's the same word as breath in Hebrew. So whether he creates the wind, we never see the wind. We have wind all the time. Growing up in Kansas, there was wind all day, every day. It was just a matter of how strong it was, but there was wind all the time. Where did it come from? I don't know. It came from God. He created it. But more importantly, where did our breath come from? We breathe because God determines we breathe. He is the creator. He's the all-powerful creator and sustainer of life. And one day, we'll stand before our creator and answer for our life he's the creator he's also the the redeemer it says that he declares to man what his thoughts are and there's debate whether or not this his thought is god's thought or man's thought it's capitalized in my bible and uh in the new american standard my point is this god revealed his plan to the world through the word Through Jesus Christ coming in the flesh and saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. God reveals his redemptive plan. Right now in Amos, Amos is standing before Israel, revealing God's plans to the people. God reveals his heart to his people and says, this is what you can expect. It's not a secret. It's not hidden. It's out in the word. And the word is this, the central message of the entire Bible is our God is a redeemer. He redeems us and buys us out of slavery and brings us into his family as a father. That is the message of scripture. He is our redeemer and he is the one who is sovereign. He makes dawn into darkness. There are mornings you wake up and that sun is so bright coming into your room. You think, how can it ever be dark again? You know, it's just like so bright and God somehow in his power and majesty turns that brightness and it turns to dark far too quick right now, right? But the days are getting longer, days are getting longer, but he turns that dawn into darkness every single day. It's the sovereignty of God. It says he treads on the high places of the earth. It just simply says God walks wherever he wants to. There could be a country that says, God, you're not allowed in our country. And God says, yeah, watch this. And he just steps right in because he can step in any place he wants to. Our God is sovereign. And he tramples over the high places. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. He is the sovereign God. That's who we'll stand in front of. And Amos makes sure we know at the very end of chapter four who this is. And he says, This is Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth. That is his name. Yahweh Elohim Sabaoth. Yahweh is the word. Uh, is, the, is the proper name of God we find in Exodus 3 when he says, I am that I am. I am the self-existent one. I am the God who is. All the other gods aren't, right? There is one God who is, and that is Yahweh. That's what his name, it's based in the word to be. He is the self-existent one. Elohim is just the word that means God, and he's simply saying, I am the one who is, and I am the one true God. And Sabaoth is what you see here, hosts. It has to do with military force and armies. He is the God who controls not only the heavenly armies, but God controls every army on the planet. When he wants, they'll do what he wants them to do. Who is our God? The self-existent, one true God who is the most powerful person in all creation, beyond creation. He is God. And so that's why we worship him. And if we stand before God in rejection of that, we shouldn't anticipate anything other than judgment. But when we stand based upon our relationship with Jesus Christ, it won't be judgment. It'll be worship that we, we encounter there at the end. We have these four aspects of, of, our, of our life. Oppression or compassion. Compassion. Religion or relationship? Rebellion or repentance? Judgment or worship? The liar, where we fall, depends upon relation to Jesus Christ. So my simple question as we end today is where are you at with Jesus Christ? Have you given your life to him? I'm going to have you bow your heads and process that and think through that. Has there been a time in your life where you say, I surrender my life to Christ? Make him the king to do what he wants me to do to live how he wants me to live so compassion will fall out of my life just naturally so i'm in relationship with him so my life is a life of repentance and a life of worship if you've not given your life to christ you can do so today and man i urge you to do that before the day is done before you leave this place give your life to christ because when we're called, prepared to meet your God, we do not want to do so on the basis of who we are and what our works have done because that will fall drastically short. Heavenly Father, I come to you and I thank you for Christ. I thank you for the free gift of salvation. God, we can't work up compassion. God, in our natural state, we are rebellious. Who we are without Christ, wants to work our religion in attempt to win, win heaven for us. God, teach us and show us that all that is vanity and what we need is Jesus Christ. God, work in our, our hearts and minds today. Change us into who you want us to be and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 1045 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org.